is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And sometimes we bring you fun stories, sometimes uplifting stories, and every once in a while, some hard stories. Painful ones, even, but that happen in all of our lives and our friends and families. And this next story is from Lindsay Schlegel, and she wrote it for Verily Magazine. Let's take a listen. When I was pregnant with my first child, my co-workers kept tabs on me to make sure I wasn't lifting boxes they deemed too heavy. At a movie theater, an older woman encouraged me to skip ahead of her in line for the bathroom. And once on the subway, a stranger reprimanded the entire car for not giving me a seat. All this is to say that I experienced an almost unanimous sense of charity, protection, and respect as a mother with child. That is, until I suffered a miscarriage. In January 2012, at the 12-week ultrasound for my second child, I learned that the baby, who had seemed perfectly healthy a few weeks before, had no heartbeat. At my obstetrician's office the following day, I waited an hour and 20 minutes for my appointment. After which the doctor offered neither an apology for the wait, nor a gesture of sympathy for the miscarriage. The next day, after undergoing a dilation and curatage procedure to remove what my body had not yet naturally expelled from my uterus, a nurse told me not to worry about what had happened to my child's body. It just looks like a bunch of tissue, she told me. That tissue had made me a mother for the second time. And now, somehow, it didn't. I realized that in some people's eyes, I wasn't a mother anymore. And yet the feelings of loss I experienced were very real. I cried every day. I had trouble sleeping at night. I began to knit almost compulsively. I had an insatiable desire to create something, as if it would make up for what I had lost. When people asked me how many children I had, I didn't know what to say. Did the child I'd lost count? Along with most other women I've encountered who have suffered one or more miscarriages, I've found that there too often lurks a societal misconception that losing a child before birth is a lesser than kind of grief. I've noticed a discrepancy when it comes to our culture's view of celebrating an expected child and mourning its unexpected death. Peruse your local card store and you will see cards celebrating the mommy-to-be or congratulating parents on their one on the way. At what point does that woman become a mother? during labor, at the moment of delivery, only if her child survives birth. When a child dies before being born or shortly after, does a mommy-to-be become a mommy who never was? (laughs) To this day, I feel a pang of grief each time I hear the name I gave my child, Ethan called out across the playground. (laughs) 
When I open the first Harry Potter novel, I feel my insides tighten at the chapter titled, The Boy Who Lived. Whenever I hear of others' miscarriages, I experience a wave of sadness all over again. From my perspective, I am still that child's mother. I always will be. The pain doesn't go away. It is real. It counts. In the three years since losing Ethan, I am grateful to have had two other healthy children. I also started a growing miscarriage support group. Time and again we talk about how painful it is to have people misunderstand or belittle our losses. For us, part of our healing involves changing the way we speak. We simply refer to a pregnant woman as a mother, not as a mother-to-be. Instead of calling what is growing in her uterus a fetus or an embryo, we call it a child, a son, or a daughter. Instead of talking about the birth as the day on which the baby arrives, we talk about the time when we will meet the new baby. So many women I've met have had the false impression that their feelings of grief post-miscarriage were over the top or too serious for such a loss. They felt that they were not supposed to be as sad as they were. And yet I think most people would agree that the pain of a parent losing a child is great suffering. Why should it be any different when we didn't get to meet our children face to face or watch them draw a breath? I think that if society offers a little more sensitivity and makes these seemingly minor yet powerful changes in speech, the door will open for more women to feel comfortable talking about their miscarriages. It is only together and through those conversations that we can grow in compassion, understanding, and healing. And thank you, Lindsay, for that story. And you can get it at Verily Magazine. And we can all examine the way we act, the way we talk about every stage of human life. And we can also get involved with an important ministry like Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep, which provides remembrance photography to parents suffering the loss of a baby. You can learn more about how you can help their work at nowilaymedowntosleep.org. And if you've got a story about a miscarriage and a loss like that, share it with us. Post it at ouramericannetwork.org. Again, we do the fun stories, but these are real stories, and, well, they're our American stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this show, we talk about everything history, sports, 
arts and entertainment, and my goodness, we even do some really some remarkable stories about music. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. It's all there, and you can get it on iTunes. You can stream it. You can get it any way you like. And now that brings us to our favorite show. We have two TV shows we track because they're so quintessentially American, and you may not have time to see them. So we filter through the best episodes and bring them to you once a week. And those two shows are Shark Tank and Judge Judy. And the best case of the week on Judge Judy this past week was the judge phoning the father. Let's take a listen to the case. 23-year-old Kenneth Kip Panette is suing his former friend, Stacy Schwartz, for taking his car without permission and damaging the transmission, the clutch, and one of the tires. And here's Judge Judy. Mr. Panette, you were at a party with the defendant. I assume she was a friend of yours, and it is your claim that she took your car without permission and wrecked it. She didn't wreck it. She hit a curb and blew out a tire, and uh, the transmission went out. And Ms. Swartz says that she had an unfortunate accident and that she might clearly be responsible for replacing a tire, but certainly not the transmission, since she had your permission and this accident was clearly not her fault. Well, she did not have my permission. Good. Sorry. So let's go back. When was this party that you had? Um, a couple of months ago. It was a Friday night. It was at my house. And I... Give me the, listen, Mr. Panette, how old are you, sir? 23. What do you do for a living? I am a market analyst. Ever been to court before, sir? No, except for traffic tickets and... Well, that's court. So, if you're a plaintiff and you have a claim, first thing you figure out is what date. Yes, Your Honor. Because the questions get harder after that, Mr. Panette. So, a couple of months ago on a Friday night isn't a date. I believe the date was December 14th, Your Honor. That's a date. Now, it was on December 14th, 2006. Where were you? At my house. Who else was there? I don't know the exact names, but a bunch of my friends. And what were you all doing? Drinking, watching TV, listening to music. Great. Having a good time. Being responsible. Yes. What happened next? Um, well, I didn't keep track of everybody around that night. Uh, I went to bed maybe around 1 or 2, and the next morning, Stacy called me and said that uh, my car was broken down. I said, you know, how could that be? It should be in front of my house. And she said she was in Sunrise, which is about 20 miles away. Where do you live? Downtown Sacramento. Go ahead. Uh, she said it was broken down. She explained to me that she had taken my car the night before and that it had broken down the night before and that she had spent the night and uh, was calling me in the morning. And spent I was, the night where? Uh, at one of her friend's house, I assume. Okay. And uh, I explained to her that she had better get my car back to me. What kind of car do you have? It's a Nissan Sentra. Year? 1997. And uh, she said she would. Uh, we exchanged words. I was a little upset, and then I fell back asleep. Um, I didn't get my car back until the next day. She had it towed back to my house. At first, she hadn't even told me that, that a tire had blown out. I had to see that for myself when it came to my house. Then she explained that to me. I had not given her permission to drive the car, so you I was very any, don't, upset. Don't, don't, I, okay. Don't repeat anything. Okay. I have other things to do. Are you finished? Uh, she had told me that she would pay for all damages. She was very apologetic at first, and I felt, you know, like I would forgive her. I had it diagnosed, and uh, she refused to pay it. She said she's you not responsible And when you had it diagnosed, what was the bill? Um, it was $1,593.83. And I'd originally said $1,600. It's uh, I'd rounded when I looked at the receipt. It's actually $6.17 less than that. Mr. Panette, mm -hmm. how did you pay for this? Uh, my father loaned me the money to pay for it, actually. Did you pay for it in check or cash, sir? Uh, I believe my father used his credit card to pay for it, and I had to pay my father back. What's your father's name? John Panette. His phone number? Uh, I, it's in my cell phone. I'm sorry. Fred, would you please get his cell phone so that we can get the father's number, please? Thank you. And he's going to verify that he paid this bill, sir? 
Yes, when I he call would. him on the phone? Good. We're going to do that okay. in a minute. Okay. And now let's hear the girl's story. Now, I'll hear you, Miss Swartz. Um, on December 14th, I was hanging out at Kip's house, and I asked him if I could borrow his car to go over to Jessica's house. Where does Jessica live? A few blocks from his house. And he said? He said yes. He let me borrow it. Good. So you understand, Miss Swartz, That's that a different place than she was. Excuse me, Your Honor. You do understand, madam, that you did have limited authority to take his car to go to Jessica's house, which is a few blocks away. You understand that? Yes. Okay. Now tell me what happened. Um, I drove over to Jessica's house and told her that I was using Kip's car. And she called me at 5 o'clock in the morning and woke me up. At Jessica's house? Yes. And told me she was drunk and stranded in Sunrise. So I didn't even think to call Kip and ask permission because he let me borrow his car. He knew I wasn't... No, 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 my dear. He knew I wasn't going to bring it back until the morning. So I... Darling! Yes, you get it now? You look as if you're smart enough to get where I'm going. Yes, ma'am. You went to pick up your friend in Sunrise. And yes. how far is Sunrise from Jessica's house? Approximately 20 miles. 20? Miles. Miles, not blocks. Miles. And it was coming back with her, this drunken friend of yours, that you had the accident. Yes. Let's hear about the accident. Now, tell me about the accident. Um, I was just driving, and I was coasting, so I was in neutral. And then I tried to put it into gear, and it would not go into gear. And I went to park immediately, and I hit the curb and popped the tire. Um, that was probably about 5.30, 6 o'clock. You must have hit the curb very hard. Well, yes, it was hard enough to pop the tire. And I immediately changed the tire. And since it was about 5.30 in the morning, my friend that I picked up just walked to her house because we were about a block away. And I slept in the car and called Kip about 9 o'clock in the morning to tell him that I was going to get his car towed back to him. Let us assume that I believe you, that Mr. Panette said that you could borrow his car to go to Jessica's house, which is a few blocks away, to yes. stay over. When you exceeded his permission by going 20 miles away the next day, you no longer had his permission. Do you understand that? But he knew I was going to have it till the morning. Don't tell me what he knew. He gave you permission, according to you, to drive it a few blocks. A few blocks is not 20 miles. I have my witness here that saw him give me permission. I just said, don't you have your listening ears on? I said, if I believe you, he gave you permission to take it a few blocks away. Once you took it 20 miles away, you no longer had permission. Your Honor, he lets me borrow the car all the time. That's not true. Just a second. Where do you think you are? Right here. Where is here? In this witness chair. And until you stand up there, what are you supposed to do? Listen to you. Right. Once you exceeded the scope of the permission, you no longer had permission. That's the law. Do you understand it? Yes. So all I have to do is deal with the issue of damages. And for that, you're going to give me John's cell phone. Yes, ma'am. Just let me power it up. Power it up. <laughs> now let's listen in as Judge Judy speaks with the 23-year-old car owner's daddy. John Panette, this is Judge Judy Scheindlin. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Do you have a moment for just a couple of quick questions for me? I'm here, as you know, trying a case involving your son and this young woman who took his car without permission. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Did he ever ask you for any money to help him repair this car? When was that? Three months ago. Do you remember how much it cost you, sir? Approximately. And did you use your credit card? Did he pay you back that money? 
I know, I have children. Did he tell you how it happened? Did he need a new transmission? Was he driving the car? Okay, very good. And you used a credit card. Okay, great. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate you taking the time. Bye-bye now. Let's find out what the father said to Judge Judy. What a nice father you have, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. And as a matter of fact, your father does remember helping you out and paying for this transmission a few months ago. That's correct. Do you know what he doesn't remember? What? He doesn't remember you paying him back. Well, I owe him money pretty much all the time, and I am always paying him. So but, but, I'm but that, in the he, that he doesn't remember. Him. I mean, he does remember laying this money out for you, but he doesn't remember the fact that you paid him. I have not fully paid him back, Your Honor. I apologize. Well, how much have you paid him, sir? Uh, well, I owe him a total of quite a bit more than that. So I guess if you got down to that bill, I haven't paid him any because I'm paying him for things that I owe him. Well, you have no objection to making the check payable to your father, do you? No, Perfect. not at all. Good. Judge him for the plaintiff in the amount of $1,593.83 to be made payable to John Bennett. Thank you very much. That's all. <laughs> and that's why everybody loves Judge Judy. And she's talking to the dad and says, did he pay you back? And there's this silence and she's laughing and she says, I know how that works. I have children. <laughs> so funny. And I love the part where Mr. Panette, the 23-year-old, is asked, what's the date? And he doesn't remember. And she says, the questions get harder after this, Mr. Panette. Judge Judy, we love talking about her show because, by the way, her show is about so many things. There's a moral universe when you enter the court of Judge Judy, and she just always gets it right. She just does, and she calls out people's BS like only someone from Queens can. And that's why we do this and Shark Tank every week, once a week. This is Lee Habib, Judge Judy. Mr. Panette, boy, and dad, their stories here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 16th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. The Corps of Discovery thought that they were the only white men among the Mandan Indians during their winter stay. They weren't. Here's William Clark. 26th of October, Friday, 1804. Here we saw a trader, McCracken, an Englishman, came nine days ago to trade horses and buffalo robes. And McCracken an independent trader wasn't the only one. 19th of November, two clerks and five men of the Northwest Company and several of the Hudson's Bay Company 
had arrived with goods to trade with the Indians. A Mr. Larock and Mackenzie are the clerks. And these were big British trading companies, not just some independent Yahoo. What were all these British doing here? I thought we had won the Revolutionary War and kicked those dudes out. Apparently not so. Here is Clay Jenkinson with the history lesson that I had forgotten. This was uh, upsetting to Captain Lewis because he, like Jefferson, wanted to remove the British and other foreign agents of the fur trade. But according to the Jay Treaty of 1795, uh, these British agents had a right to trade on American soil as long as they did so acknowledging the sovereignty of the United States. Would they? Throughout this series, you've heard Clay mention yearning for another perspective besides the core of discoveries. What did the Indians think of these guys? Well, they largely didn't write things down, so we just don't know. And we are only left with the core of discoveries perspective. Until these English came along and wrote things down for better and for worse. For better, Charles Mackenzie wrote this. We lived contentedly became intimate with the gentlemen of the American expedition who on all occasions seemed happy to see us and always treated us with civility and kindness. And for worse, he also wrote this. It is true Captain Lewis could not make himself agreeable to us. He could speak fluently and learnedly on all subjects. But his inveterate disposition against the British, stain, at least in our eyes, all his eloquence. It's a tremendous quotation. It's one of the most interesting things that was said. And so Lewis's anglophobia comes from several sources. Uh, first of all, he's a good small R Republican. So his party, the party of Jefferson, the party of Madison and Monroe and so on, was inveterately uh, anglophobic. Uh, because they maintained resentments from the war, and they were pretty certain that even though Britain had lost the war politically, it was it was continuing to enslave us Americans economically and engaged in all sorts of unfair trade practices uh, around the Atlantic world. So that was part of it. But also, Lewis was a Jeffersonian, and Jefferson was a sort of um, almost knee-jerk Anglophobe. Hamilton once says, uh, that Jefferson has a womanish attachment to France and a womanish resentment of England. And even though that's uh, probably unfair, there's a kernel of truth in that. And then, of course, finally, and, and maybe primarily, Lewis's father was uh, died during the Revolution. He didn't die in battle. He died of pneumonia uh, from uh, getting wet in a while crossing a river while on leave, but from Lewis's point of view, he would have been a child of about four years old at the time. Um, he would have always, of course, have associated his father's death with the revolution, and so that would have deepened his anglophobia. So partly he was he was mouthing the official policy of the Jefferson administration, which was relatively sympathetic to France, deeply 
unsympathetic to England. He was voicing concerns about the fur trade, which was being monopolized by the British. And then he was reflecting on his own politics, his own status as Jefferson's surrogate son, and the fact that his, his biological father, whom he barely knew, had died during America's um, fight for independence. So Jefferson would have been much more gracious. I can't imagine Jefferson invoking the same reaction in the British that Lewis did, but but you can see all of these um, factors in in Lewis's response, which is partly why these British traders preferred Clark, because Clark was, was much less... Um, intense about his anglophobia and with that juicy background here's what went down on these days in history mr larock one of the brits gave medals and flags to the indian chiefs we impress it on the minds of their nations that those symbols were not to be received by any from them without they wish to incur the displeasure of their great american father Thomas Jefferson. A very disagreeable day. No work done today. Boy, Clark sounds frustrated. And I understand how he's feeling, and I bet you do too. You ever have one of those days in the office where someone comes in and they needlessly chitter-chatter for way too long, and you feel like your day was just wasted? Huh. At least there aren't foreign policy implications when it happens to us. But this was no laughing matter to Lewis and Clark. Lewis pulled them aside and told them in no uncertain terms that uh, he did not prefer their being there, that he intended to replace them with American trade coming up from St. Louis, uh, that he regarded them as a security threat to American national interests, but they could stay as long as they did nothing to undermine American interests or as long as they didn't distribute peace medals or other sovereignty tokens amongst the native peoples. Here's how the English responded, at least how William Clark reported their response. Mr. Larock denied having any such intention gave fair promises. And there you have it, another episode in our most epic road trip ever. And again, our 16th. And we want to thank, as always, our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. That's clayjenkinson.com. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, the man deserves it. The most epic road trip ever here in Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear the other 15. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org and to hear all that we do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. I, I love the colorful clothes she wears And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair This week in music history, 1966, the Beach Boys went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with Good Vibration, the group's third U.S. number one. As a child, Brian Wilson's mother told him that dogs could pick up vibrations from people, which would cause the dog to bark at bad vibrations. Right. Wilson then turned this into the general idea for the lyrics to this song. And in 1968, Marvin Gaye scored his first U.S. number one single when I Heard It Through the Grapevine, started a five-week run at number one on the top. Just seven years earlier, in 1961, the Marvelettes went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with Please Mr. Postman. That drummer you hear in the background was actually 22-year-old Marvin Gaye. This was the first Motown song to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And born this week in music history, 1959, American singer, actor, and producer Frank Sinatra. His cocktail of choice was a mix of four ice cubes, two fingers of Jack Daniels whiskey, and a splash of water. And if you want to hold the drink like Frank, don't touch the rim. Someday, when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you in the way you look tonight. Yes, you're lovely With your smile so warm And your cheeks so soft There is nothing for me But to love you And the way you look tonight With each word, your tenderness grows, tearing my fear apart. And that life, wrinkled. 
touches my foolish heart Lovely and never, never change Keep that breathless charm Won't you please arrange it Cause I love you Just the way you look tonight Touches my foolish heart Lovely Don't you ever change Keep that breathless charm Won't you please arrange it Cause I love you Just the way you look tonight And in 1979, Pink Floyd started a five-week run at number one on the UK singles chart with another Brick in the Wall Part 2, their only UK chart topper. The song, which was also the final number one single of the 1970s, received a Grammy nomination for the best performance by a rock duo or group. But Pink Floyd lost to Bob Seger's Against the Wind. In 2006, the co-founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmad Erdogan, died at age 83. He suffered a head injury when he fell at a Rolling Stones concert at New York's Beacon Theater. And born this week in music history, 1950, American musician, singer-songwriter, producer Billy Gibbons. He formed ZZ Top in late 1969 and released ZZ Top's first album in 71. The band's top-selling album is the 1983 Eliminator, which sold more than 10 million copies in the U.S. Billy Gibbons wrote and recorded the demo to Got Me Under Pressure in just one afternoon. In 1993, MTV aired Nirvana's Unplugged Session for the very first time. The album featured an acoustic performance taped at Sony Music Studios in New York City on November 18th of 1993. This is off her first record. Most people don't own it.
Unlike many artists who appeared on the show, Nirvana filmed its entire performance in a single take with the band's 14-song set list that included six cover songs. The first Jimi Hendrix Experience single, Hey Joe, was released in the UK on Polydor Records. The track had been rejected by the Decca label. It went on to be a number six hit in the UK, but failed to chart in the United States. Yet this is the song that started it all for Hendrix. After being discharged from the army in 1962, he worked as a backing musician for the Isley Brothers and Little Richard. In 1966, he performed under the name Jimmy James in the group Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, which is where Hendrix introduced Hey Joe to the band and the rest of the world. And that's This Week in Music History. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. The arts, sports, history, sometimes some policy, 
and never screaming, never yelling. And we love to tell soldiers' stories on this show and first responders. And by the way, on the soldiers' front, we don't wait until Veterans Day or Memorial Day to tell those stories because our men and women are out there every day and always have been all year round. And this story, well, it's a doozy. This is the man that other Army Green Berets think of when they need that little extra inspiration in the middle of a harrowing firefight. You know how much we love artists on this show, but no writer in Hollywood could have come up with this story. We're actually going to meet Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez later in this hour. But first, let's hear President Ronald Reagan read the unbelievable citation for his Medal of Honor, our nation's highest award for valor. And again, then we'll hear from Benavidez himself tell his life story that began with being a poor, orphaned, mixed-race dropout. Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, United States Army retired for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. Where there is a brave man, it is said, there is the thickest of the fight. There is the place of honor. On May 2nd, 1968, Master Sergeant, then Staff Sergeant Roy P. Benavides, distinguished himself by a series of daring and extremely valorous actions while assigned to Detachment B-56, 5th Special Forces Group Airborne, 1st Special Forces Republic of Vietnam. On the morning of May 2, 1968, a 12-man Special Forces Reconnaissance Team was inserted by helicopters in a dense jungle area west of Lac Ninh, Vietnam, to gather intelligence information about confirmed large-scale enemy activity. This area was controlled and routinely patrolled by the North Vietnamese Army. After a short period of time on the ground, the team met heavy enemy resistance and requested emergency extraction. Three helicopters attempted extraction, but were unable to land due to intense enemy small arms and anti-aircraft fire. Sergeant Benavides was at the forward operating base in Lac Ninh monitoring the operation by radio when these helicopters returned to offload wounded crew members and to assess aircraft damage. Sergeant Benavides voluntarily boarded a returning aircraft to assist in another extraction attempt. Realizing that all the team members were either dead or wounded and unable to move to the pickup zone, he directed the aircraft to a nearby clearing where he jumped from the hovering helicopter and ran approximately 75 meters under withering small arms fire to the crippled team. Prior to reaching the team's position, he was wounded in his right leg, face, and head. Despite these painful injuries, he took charge, repositioning the team members and directing their fire to facilitate the landing of an extraction aircraft and the loading of wounded and dead team members. He then threw smoke canisters to direct the aircraft to the team's position. Despite his severe wounds and under intense enemy fire, he carried and dragged half of the wounded team members to the awaiting aircraft. He then provided protective fire by running alongside the aircraft as it moved to pick up the remaining team members. As the enemy's fire intensified, he hurried to recover the body and the classified documents on the dead team leader. When he reached the team leader's body, Sergeant Benavides was severely wounded by small arms fire in the abdomen and grenade fragments in his back. At nearly the same moment, the aircraft pilot was mortally wounded and his helicopter crashed. Although in extremely critical condition due to his multiple wounds, Sergeant Benavides secured the classified documents and made his way back to the wreckage 
where he aided the wounded out of the overturned aircraft and gathered the stunned survivors into a defensive perimeter. Under increasing enemy automatic weapons and grenade fire, he moved around the perimeter, distributing water and ammunition to his weary men, reinstilling in them a will to live and fight. Facing a buildup of enemy opposition with a beleaguered team, Sergeant Benavides mustered his strength and began calling in tactical airstrikes and directing the fire from supporting gunships to suppress the enemy's fire and so permit another extraction attempt. He was wounded again in his thigh by small arms fire while administering first aid to a wounded team member just before another extraction helicopter was able to land. His indomitable spirit kept him going as he began to carry his comrades to the craft. On his second trip with the wounded, he was clubbed from behind by an enemy soldier. In the ensuing hand-to-hand -hand combat, he sustained additional wounds to his head and arms before killing his adversary. He then continued under devastating fire to carry the wounded to the helicopter. Upon reaching the aircraft, he spotted and killed two enemy soldiers who were rushing the craft from an angle that prevented the aircraft door gunner from firing upon them. With little strength remaining, he made one last trip to the perimeter to ensure that all classified material had been collected or destroyed and to bring in the remaining wounded. Only then, in serious condition from numerous wounds and loss of blood, did he allow himself to be pulled into the extraction aircraft. Sergeant Benavides' gallant choice to join voluntarily his comrades who were in critical straits, to expose himself constantly to withering enemy fire, and his refusal to be stopped despite numerous severe wounds saved the lives of at least eight men. His fearless personal leadership, tenacious devotion to duty, and extremely valorous actions in the face of overwhelming odds were in keeping with the finest traditions of the military service and reflect the utmost credit on him and the United States Army. Sergeant Benedictus, a nation grateful to you and to all your comrades living and dead, awards you its highest symbol of gratitude for service above and beyond the call of duty, the Congressional Medal of Honor. What a story, huh, folks? Yep, real American doing that. A real-life human being did that, not some movie character. And when we come back, we're going to hear from that real-life human being. We're going to hear from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez, Medal of Honor winner for his valor in Vietnam. And wait till you hear his voice. You're going to love him. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Sign up for our podcast there. Listen to what we do there. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. 
And we just heard President Ronald Reagan read an almost unbelievable Medal of Honor citation. But who was the man behind the legend? Here's Roy Benavidez himself telling us where it all began. I come from a little town named Quero, Texas. I was born there, the Turkey capital of the world. After the death of my mother and father, at an early age, my brother and I were adopted by an aunt and uncle. We moved to El Campo, Texas, a town southwest of Houston, about nine and a half. I was raised there. I went to school there. I worked at odd jobs, shine shoes, sold papers, picked cotton. And like a fool, I dropped out of school and I ran away from home. I'm not proud of that. I needed to learn a skill. I needed an education. My adopted father would tell me, son, an education and a diploma is the key to success. Bad habits and bad company will ruin you. Well, I was too old to go back to school. I didn't want to return back, so I joined the Texas National Guard. And I liked what I saw in men in uniform. And I qualified to join the regular army. I needed that education and learned the skill. So I was accepted into the regular army, and I heard about airborne. I heard about that extra pay that you get for jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> so I qualified to go to jump school at Fort Bend, Georgia. But the Dern recruiters never told me what the training was like. For every mistake that you make, you do push-ups. And I can honestly tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm one of the guys that helped put Georgia into South Carolina doing push-ups. <laughs> well, I finished my training. I got assigned to a well-known unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the 82nd Airborne Division. And so after a while there, I heard about the Special Forces. You know us as the Green Berets. And they were coming up, so I qualified to join the Special Forces. Of course, I'm a linguist. We and the Special Forces are trained to operate deep behind enemy lines with little or no support at all. We are trained in five specialties. I'm trained in three. Operation Intelligence, where I learned oceanography, meteorology, photography. I'm an interrogator and I'm a linguist. I'm trained in light and heavy weapons and cross-transdomatic. I've been all over the world, the Far East, Europe, South and Central America, and two tours in Vietnam. I was assigned to Berlin, Germany, and I was declared one time that I was the only Hispanic American that could speak German with a southern accent. Feeling danke, danke schön. So I came back and retrained at Fort Bragg, and Vietnam was brewing up. In 1965, I was sent to Vietnam as an advisor to Vietnamese infantry unit. After a short period of time there, I stepped on a mine. I woke up in the Philippine Islands in Clocker Air Force Base. I was paralyzed from the waist down. I was declared never to walk again. I was transferred to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, Beach Pavilion. The doctors were initiating my medical discharge papers. Now, most people would take a landmine, paralysis, and discharge papers as subtle hints to start plans for your retirement but not Benavides. That night, I would slip out of bed and crawl to a wall. 
using my elbows and my chin. My back would just be killing me, I'd be crying. But I'd get to the wall, and I'd set myself against the wall, and I'd back myself up against the wall, and I'd stand there like Elijah the Indian. I'd stand there and move my toes right and left, right. Every single chance I got, a, I got. I wanted to walk. I wanted to go back to Vietnam because of what the news media was saying about us, that our president was not needed there, to burn the flag, what. And I saw a lot of other patients coming back, limbs missing. I wanted to go back. I was determined because I remember when I was taught in jump school, our old master sergeant would tell me, Benavides, quitters never win and winners never quit. What are you? So I'm a winner. I remember that my leader would tell me, faith, determination, and a positive attitude. A positive attitude will carry you further than ability. You can do it, Benavides. You can do it. I never forgot those three words. Never. So there I was at night, I'd slip out of bed. The nurses would catch me sometimes. They would chew me out, give me a pill, a sleeping pill, put me to sleep. They would tell the doctors in the morning. I was determined to walk. Nine months later, here comes my medical discharge paper. And I told the doctor, doctor, look what I can do. He said, Sergeant, I'm sorry. Even if you can stand up, you'll never be able to walk. I jumped out of bed and I stood up right before him. My back was hurting, aching. I was crying. And I moved just a little bit. The doctor said, Benavides, if you walk out of this room, I'll tear these papers up. I walked out of that ward at Beach Pavilion. I walked out with a limp. I went back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I started my therapy again running five and ten miles a day, doing 50, 100 push-ups. And I made three parachute jumps in one day. I was ready to go back to Vietnam, physically and mentally ready to go back. My orders were to go to Central America as an advisor. But being a non-commissioned officer and knowing some of the good officers in the right places, my orders were diverted. So I, so I went back to Vietnam in 1968. And so now he's back in Vietnam, and the war, well, it's ramping up. The latter part of April, I was inserted, my buddy and I, to gather intelligence information behind enemy lines. After two days on the ground, my buddy was shot through the eye, the back, and legs. Our mission was completed, but I didn't want to leave my buddy behind. I called in for an extraction helicopter to come and get us out. They came in with the McGuire rig. McGuire rig is nothing but a piece of rope, nylon rope with a hook. In this case, there was two ropes. We hooked on, the enemy was firing at us. We pulled up, going up through the canopy of the jungle. Our rope started to twist and rub. You know, nylon, it burns when it rubs. As we cleared the canopy, our ropes were completely twisting and rubbing. And there was a non-commissioned officer that looked out of the helicopter riding as a safety man. And when he saw those two ropes burning, he immediately tied himself with a piece of rope around his waist and he pulled himself out of the helicopter and undid those two ropes, separated them. That's dedication. That's love of fellow man and country. 
I'll never forget that man. We landed in a safe spot. My buddy was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter he expired. There was nothing more he could do for his friend, and so Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez naturally got right out and back to work again. I was in another staging area waiting for an next assignment. When I heard on the radio something like a popcorn machine, then I heard a voice, get us out of here, get us out of here, come in and get us out quick, ASAP. I asked the radio operator, who are those? He said, I don't know. They haven't gave us any call sign. And I saw some helicopter pilots run to the flight line, scrambling. I ran right behind them. We saw a helicopter coming in, land, and had a door gunner slumped over his weapon. When the helicopter landed, I unstrapped the door gunner, Michael Craig, 19 years old. We just celebrated his 19th birthday in March. I cradled him in my arms, and his last words were, my God, my mother and father. I asked the pilot, who are the people on the ground? He said, hey, he said, that black NCO, that non-commissioned officer saved your life the other day, remember? I said, Leroy Wright. Leroy always got paid for top secret assignments, him and Musso and O'Connor. So it was an instant reaction. I saw a bag of medical supplies, I picked it up, went over to my helicopter, got on the helicopter, we got on with the forward air controller to guide us in, he said, you can't go in there, you can't go in, it's too hot. Little did I know that I was going to spend six hours in hell. And when we come back, more from Master Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez. His story, here on Our American Stories. And we just heard how Sergeant Benavidez heard his buddies being overrun over the radio. So he decided to jump on a chopper against everyone's sane advice. As he says, he did not know that would be the start of his six hours in hell. He was practically a one-man army, providing cover fire and darting back and forth to bring back friendly, wounded, and secure classified documents. Here again... Master Sergeant Roy Benavides. You heard what the president read the citation of how in the Medal of Honor. But he didn't tell you of what I went through when I in, engaged in the hand-to-hand combat. I was hitting the mouth with the butt of the weapon. My jaws were locked. After my last return back to the helicopter, when I was boarded on, I was holding my intestines in my hand. We 
lifted up. The helicopter had over its payload. Blood was flowing on both sides of the helicopter. When we landed, it locked me in our staging area. And it started unloading. It started identifying the bodies. They found out I loaded three dead enemy soldiers in that helicopter. I didn't want to leave anybody behind. My mission was to recover the classified material, so if anybody had it, I, I, he was on a helicopter. So they left, they left the three enemy soldiers on the side, and because I sort of look oriental, they thought I was one of them, so they let me lay right next to them. And they were putting us in body bags. And I remember that my feet had been lifted, and I was inserted into the body bag, and I could hear that zipper coming up, and I thought, oh my God, no, no. My eyes were shut because I had blood all over my face, my eyes, and the blood had dried up in my eyelids. And I couldn't talk because my jaws were locked, and I could hear that zipper coming up, coming up. And one of my buddies was doing the Mexican head dance, and he was yelling at the doctor, that's Roy, that's Roy Benavides. The doctor said, sorry, there's nothing I can do for him. Oh my God, and that zipper just, just coming up. I was trying to wiggle in my own blood. And finally, I find out later, Jerry Cottenham made that doctor at least to feel my heartbeat. When I felt that hand on my chest, I made the luckiest shot I ever made in my life. I spit in the doctor's face. <laughs> so the doctor said, I think he'll make it. He'll... So I, uh, I was uh, cleaned up, put in a helicopter, alongside with my buddy, one of the guys that I had saved. We got airborne, and I just said to myself, hold on, buddy, just hold on. We're going to get some medical attention. And his grip tightened up on me. And then he let go. I said, oh, God, why do you put me through this test? Why? You helped me get these men out, save them, save this material, and now you take them away from me. Why? And I was crying, I was moving so much at the co-pilot. He happened to look back, and he thought that I was gasping for air, so he gets out of his seat, get his bayonet out, and he's going to do a track on me, and I'm about to kick him out of the helicopter. <laughs> That's just too much for one day. So they... We landed in the hospital at, at uh, Long Bend, and I was wheeled to the operating room. And as I was being lifted to my operating table, I saw this nurse on her hands and knees crying, yelling, asking God, why do you do this to these men? Why? Just crying. And as I turned a little bit to my left, I saw on the other operating table a man that had both legs and both arms missing. I passed out. I woke up in the ward. One of my buddies was laying next to me. We were so bandaged up, we couldn't talk. We used to wiggle our toes to make sure that we were still alive. After a short while, my buddy was transferred from there, and I thought he had died. I was transferred to Japan, Tachikawa. And that airplane that I was flying in, Matavak, we lost two men. And I remember this nurse kept yelling at me, Benavides, you're not going to die on me. I'm going to pinch you every time you close your eyes. I'm going to pinch you. I'm going to pinch you. 
Boy, she kept pinching me. When I got to Tachikawa, when I got to Japan, and they wheeled me into the operating room, they disrobed me again. I remember the doctor, I heard him say, what in the world happened to you? I had blue spots, red spots all over me, and I said, that lady kept pinching me up there. <laughs> so after, I went back to Fort Sam Houston, the Beach Pavilion, and I stayed in that hospital almost a year. I continued with my career, then I was awarded with a medal. And by the way, there are so many heroes in this story, as we learn, and he's quick to give credit. Those nurses, boy, they do unbelievable work. You're not going to die on me, Benavidez. Boy, did she make sure of it. After all of this, Benavidez recovered, and then he moved back to Texas. For the rest of his life, he spread his message to young Americans. I was dedicating myself to come and speak to schools, to civic groups, to help anyone that I can help. My life was spared for a reason, and I hope there's a good reason. A lot of people call me a hero. I appreciate the title, but the real heroes are the ones that gave their life for this country. The real heroes are our wives, our mothers. Above all, the heroes are the ones that are laying in those hospitals, disabled for life in those hospital beds. But the real heroes are the future leaders of our country, these students that are staying in school and learning to say no to drugs. Those are our real heroes. You know, there's a saying among us veterans, for those that had fought for it, Life has a special flavor that protected will never know. You have never lived till you almost died. And it is us veterans that pray for peace most of all, especially the wounded, because we have to suffer the wounds of war. I'm asked hundreds of times, would you do it over again? In my 25 years in the military, I feel like I've been overpaid for the service to my country. There'll never be enough paper to print the money, nor enough gold in Fort Knox for me to have to keep from doing what I did. I'm proud to be an American, and even prouder. And I'm even prouder that I've earned the privilege to wear the Green Beret. I live by the motto of duty, honor, country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. What a speech. We got to play that a few times a year. It just has to be done. You've never lived until you almost died. And those three words, duty, honor, country. And they're not platitudes when you hear it from this man. They're real. He's the real deal. This is Lee Habib, Mastin Sergeant Roy P. Benavidez's story, the Medal of Honor winner, Vietnam vet, and just what an American, and what an American story. To hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. OurAmericanNetwork.org.
Riders on the storm Riders on the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm This is Our American Stories And we often bring you the story of a song. We've covered dozens of them on this show, and you can hear them all at OurAmericanNetwork.org, Another Brick in the Wall, There Goes My Life, Jesus Take the Wheel, Georgia On My Mind, and Light My Fire by the Doors. And now we bring you another Doors song story, and it's told by Ray Manzarek, best known as the keyboardist and founding member of the Doors with Jim Morrison. Sitting at his Rhodes keyboard, Manzarek demonstrates here the creation of Riders on the Storm like the masterful musician that he was. So one day we're jamming in the studio, I mean in our rehearsal studio, in the Doors workshop before, uh, we, got, uh, before we started recording. And uh, for some reason or another, Robbie was playing his twang guitar. And we were doing a old cowpoke went riding out on dark and windy day. And uh, Jim said, I got lyrics for that. I got lyrics for that. And he had uh, Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm. And I said, wait, wait, okay, that's great, man. Riders on the Storm. We can't, but we can't do, to, we can't do Vaughn Monroe. Or the old cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day. So I said, let me see what I can do with this. And here's what I came up with. We got to put some jazz to it, make it dark. And sure enough, this is what happened. But before we get to that, Oh, 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 Jerry Sheffs, when he, when he comes in, we've got the whole thing together. And Jerry Sheff says, what's the bass line? I said, like, simple. E minor, A major. He said, oh, man, that's impossible. I said, what, for you? That's not impossible. That's, look at this. It's like nothing to it. And he said, uh-uh. That's, that's on the piano, right? That's on the keyboard. Sure, that works great on the keyboard. There's nothing to it. Watch this on the bass guitar, and I don't know what the hell he did. He had to go through machinations, like turning his wrist up virtually upside down, inside out, trying to play it. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, man, but it sounds so good. And it's so easy on the keyboard that you got to play this. And he went, okay, okay, I'll play it. And here's the rain part. Thunder. After we finished the song, he said, Oh man, I've got super rain and thunder. It's riders on the storm. It's raining on the desert, right? Yeah, exactly, Bruce. Raining on the desert. He said, we got to put in some, uh, some rain and thunder. So sure enough, I mean, the whole thing starts with... And then that bass line.
Another one. Ender Morrison. Riders on the stone. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born. Into this world we're thrown. Like a dog without a bone. Actor out on loan, riders on the storm. So it's basically a blues song. It's a one four five, except we change the five. And this insane part that Morrison sings: "There's a killer on the road, brain is squirming like a toad." Take a long holiday. Let your children play. If you give this man a ride, sweet family will die. Killer on the road. Yeah, Robbie. And we're listening to the one, the only Ray Manzarek, founding member of the Doors, as he walks us through the creation of this masterpiece. Riders on the Storm, which was released in June of 1971. Ray goes on to give some vivid insights to the haunting lyrics crafted by Morrison. And again, this is why we love telling these stories. You're hearing it from Manzarek himself, taking us into the song, taking us into the DNA, into the coding of this song. And by the way, you don't hear music like this in a mixture of jazz and blues and country western and all mashed together in this creative and almost brilliant way. And what a story Morrison's telling. He's really putting you in a place. And so let's continue with Ray Manzarek. And then Jim sings, Girl, you've got to love your man. Girl, you've got to love your man. Take him by the hand. Understand his world on you depends, our life will never end. Gotta love your man. He had the idea to make a movie about a hitchhiking killer. And that's if you give this man a ride, sweet family will die, killer on the road. But he couldn't. He couldn't leave it at that. He couldn't, the song was just too haunted and too beautiful. And almost, almost as if he had a premonition. And certainly he knew he, at this point, singing this vocal, he knew that he was going to Paris. You know, he knew he was going to Paris. He hadn't told anybody before we did this vocal, but he knew he was going to Paris. And he was singing his love to Pam and trying to wipe out in his mind and on the planet that killer on the road. So he says, girl, you gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Take him by the hand. Make him understand. His world on you depends. Our life will never end. What a great line that is. I mean, isn't that the ultimate love? His world on you depends, our life will never end. 
gotta love your man. Girl, you gotta love your man. Keyboard solo. Thunder. Then Densmore kicks it in again. And we're back on the highway. Riders on the stone. Jim's back in. Riders on the stone. Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone An actor out on loan Riders on the storm Robbie plays some great guitar That haunted voice, riders on the stone, riders on the stone, riders on the stone. And what a performance. You just want it to not stop, actually. And that's what we do here in Our American Stories, the story of a song. That's Ray Manzarek, Riders on the Storm. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do, and particularly our stories of a song. It's one of our favorite regular fe- regular features. Another Brick in the Wall, There Goes My Life, George on My Mind, Light My Fire, and many, many others. And again, thanks to Ray Manzarek for that instruction. It's like, it's like going to school, but the kind of school you wish you'd had in your life, but never did. And so we leave where we started. This is Our American Stories.